Well, as you may know, uh, we live, I think, uh, in a world of discouragement and discouraging people. Uh, I was looking at some facts this morning. The majority of news outlets, uh, their made headlines, about 90% are negative things, whether it's like death or crime or, hey, did you hear this is going bad? Or, hey, how about this? Did you know that? Or whatever. It's just negative things. It's about 90%. Uh, there was a CNN reporter, a, a major news anchor who was uh, caught one day saying this famous sentence uh, for how they uh, dictate what goes on headlines and is, if it bleeds, it leads. So if there's blood involved, it's a headline because people like violence. We, we're attracted to this crime, this thirstiness, right? We get excited about it. We, thrive, we almost thrive off hearing bad news, uh, telling bad stories, complaining about bad things. I'm a pretty good example of complaining about things. And we sink our teeth into bad opinions. Uh, we live in dark days, and oftentimes we help perpetuate these things by being a means of being negative or, or encouraging discouragement, right? By nature, we are complainers. <clears throat> we know how to badmouth and gossip and fuss or whine. Uh, we are trained professionals in discouraging, right? It's very easy to discourage. It's very hard to encourage, right? We're, we're good at one and typically not the other. Uh, I wonder if you've ever heard the story of the discouraged husband, very poor guy. He, he said this, my wife is so negative. I remembered the car seat, the stroller, and the diaper bag. Yet all she can talk about is how I forgot the baby. <laughs> Many times we dwell on the negative things rather than the positive or the good thing or the encouraging thing. It's just our nature. Uh, if you know much about Paul's traveling companion named Barnabas, you know that his name literally means, like they translate it, right? The apostle said in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, his name is son of encouragement. So Barnabas was just an encouraging guy to be around, right? That's what he, that's what he did. Well, in Matthew five sixteen, Jesus said that we should let our light shine before others so that they, others, may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I think one of the most simple ways Easiest ways that you as a Christian can shine brightly for Christ in a way that is right and helpful is to be one who, is, who, who's greet, who greets people and who is very encouraging of others. It does take effort to encourage other people. It requires uh, love. It requires you to know biblical truth and to be, have the spirit within you to do it rightly in a way that would be helpful. I think it's because encouraging people is primarily a spiritual matter. Let me read from you. Uh, from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 23. This is encouraging as a, this is a Christian thing. We own this, right? So let's make sure we do this well. Hebrews 10, verse 23 through 25 says this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So every one of us is either sharpening or dulling one another, right? As iron sharpens iron, Proverbs said we should sharpen one another, right? That's our job as a, as a Christian. We're, we're either helping or harming someone's spiritual growth. We're either obedient or disobedient in that category. So encouragement and greeting is bound up in truth for God's word and love for Christ and love for other Christians. And as Christians, we should aim to outdo one another in encouraging. It's very easy, but yet we struggle with it, don't we? Encourage them in love and good works for God's glory. It's, it's, our, it's, 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 uh, 
It's our trade. This is our thing. We, we, we should aim for this to be encouraging one another. I want to read you a really encouraging, <laughs> encouraging, a very good and encouraging quote from a commentator who said this. <clears throat> hope you hear it well. One of the highest of human duties is the duty of encouragement. It is easy to laugh at men's ideals. It is easy to pour cold water on their enthusiasm. It is easy to discourage others. The world is full of discouragers. We have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Many a time a word or of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept a man on his feet. Blessed is the man who speaks such a word. Don't you want to be like that? Right? It's, that's, yes, I want that. It feels good, right? That is good. So today I want to give you three, like Paul has three crucial elements of what a Christian, uh, a greeting or an encouragement kind of the same thing of what that looks like. So three elements you need to have to understand to be a good Christian uh, encourager or a greeter, you could say. It's kind of what Paul's going here for. Number one, we must devote ourselves to one another's benefit. So very simple. You must devote yourself to another's benefit. Look at verses 15 through 18. And Paul describes this in two simple ways. First, it must be intentional. On purpose, it's intentional. Look at verses 15 through 17. I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus and were the first converts in Achaia, and they've been de- they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. So Paul is highlighting, if you notice, he says the, the first converts. So these are new believers in Achaia, right? The household of Stephanus. He holds them up. Like, if one example, look at these guys. Look at these new believers. Look at them. Uh, not because he's not saying look at their conversion. He's saying rather look at their devotion, right? Look what it says. The household. So, uh, chapter one, verse sixteen of First Corinthians, Paul says that that's the only house that he baptized. So. Going to assume probably husband, wife, kids were converted. That's, that's household means. It means at least everyone in the house. It could be more people, but it's the household, right? Who, who's ever in that house? Paul says to look at them, do what they do. Be like them. And what are they doing? Well, he explains just a minute. Remember that most, much of Paul's words in this letter, if you recall, um, are aimed at the Corinthians' problems. If you've been here since the first chapter, you know this church in Corinth is, they are just a jacked up mess. I mean, you name it, they got it. You name the plague, they have it. It just, what, what, what is it wrong? Well, I don't really know. They have, they're individualistic, they're prideful, they're self-centered, they're deafness to how God commands them to, ought, to act and how they ought to love. Just think of this, chapter one, they're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, right? Uh, chapter three, there's jealousy and strife. Chapter four, they're boasting and, 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 and wrong things. Chapter five, there's laziness to confront Sin in the church, they say, ah, let's, let's not do that. Just forget about it. It's laziness. Chapter 6, they get mad. They start suing each other inside their own church. Chapter 8, they argue over conscience issues. Well, you ought to because I ought to. So you got to do that too, right? Chapter 11, they go to the Lord's table and they get drunk off it. I mean, can you imagine a worse congregation? For crying out loud. So while all the Corinthians were coming together, they were actually there for their individual reasons. They were here corporately, but they're here individually, right? They gathered separately, you could say. And here Paul says, look at these first fruits. Look at these first converts as examples. Look at their devotion. Stephanus' household, along with Fortunatus and Achaeus in verse 17, they are intentional. 
Uh, if you have the King James, it uses a pretty good word there. It says they are addicted. They're addicted to doing this. This, this is all they want to do. They're addicted to this, to serving and ministering the saints. Paul says, be subject to them. Be like them. You see what they're doing? Be like them. Uh, the word here for serving or uh, the service of the saints is the, is the word diakonia, where we get the word deacons from. So it means serving. So they're deaconing people. Go deacon like them, right? They're serving people, ministering, you could say. So though they're not deacons in office, they are deacons at heart. They're devoted to, one, to each other's good. So rather than coming each Lord's Day, this family, uh, when they came on Sunday, they weren't looking at their calendar. Rather, they were saying, how can I fill my calendar with other people's stuff? How can I do that? I know that guy. He needs this. How can I put him on my calendar tomorrow or next week? Now, none of us, and me included, <laughs> probably, uh, would admit to being self-centered. We don't usually walk around saying I'm self-centered or selfish, but our hearts do deceive us. Uh, we come into this world devoted not to God and to others, but to ourselves. Uh, they were addicted to serving others. We are addicted to self. As John Newton has always called him, uh, we love Mr. Self. He's our favorite person. We, just, we know him very well. We like him. So perhaps a good way to evaluate this in your own life is to ask yourselves this. So let this question sit. I heard it this week in class or something, when it was. It was very, very convicting. You've probably heard it before. If God answered every prayer you prayed yesterday, how many other people would be saved or strengthened or encouraged or provided for or helped or cared for? And not just your immediate family. I mean, that's good, but other people that are in your house. That's just what these guys are doing. How many would be answered for other people? John Piper said it this way, that selfishness seeks its own private happiness at the expense of others. Love seeks its happiness in the happiness of others. So more blessed to give than to what? Receive, right? That's, if I make them happy, that's better, right? That, that's what he's going for. This requires being intentional. So let me ask you a question. Do you visit with the same people each Sunday morning? Do you inquire and speak to visitors? Do you look for those who are maybe left out? Uh, do you send texts to people here? Just check in. Hey, I'm talking to you a long time. How are you doing? How's, your, how's work? Do you ask them, hey, how can I be praying for you this week? Is your life filled with your plans so that we don't have room for others' needs? Friends, I'm in the same boat. These questions sting, don't they? But what, what is our reason for thinking like this? What is the Christian motive? Well, I'm sure you know, this is the exact way that Jesus came into the earth, right? Mark 10, 45, for the son of man came not to be served, but to what? To serve, right? To give his life as a ransom for any. Jesus came to give of himself at great expense to himself for the benefit of ill-deserving people. So they would be enriched, strangers, sinners, enemies, right? So they would get good and he would get judgment right on the cross he didn't wait for us to ask for help because we, we never would he intentionally seeks us out and says i'm gonna go get that one I'm, I'm, I'm gonna intentionally seek him out at the right time romans 5 says his coming was planned it was intentional so how can you today or this week planned send initiate sacrifice 
or give for the good of somebody else in this room. Second description in this first thing is it is refreshing. This is much quicker. Look at verse 18. So Paul says, uh, I'm glad they came. They did great. But look at why he's glad. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So Paul describes, describes the way that it benefited him. What did it do? Refresh. Isn't that a good word? Refresh. Especially when it's hot outside. What does cold water do? Oh, man, that's good, right? That's just, that's refreshing, right? Cool water on a hot day. Their self-giving was other helping. So Paul says that we should recognize such people. So what's interesting is what Paul is saying, and don't miss this, is a quick sentence. Those who should be recognized, Paul is saying, are not those who necessarily lead, though if they're doing this, that's good. Paul's saying, recognize those who are not just leading others, but who are feeding others. Are they giving themselves to their people? That's who you should be like. Are they laying their lives down? Be like that guy, right? Yes, people who lead are great. We're not knocking that. Paul's saying right here, What's most important is a real leader lays himself down, and they're leading in that way. Isn't that interesting? It's not the head of notice, but it's those who are laying themselves down. And it's refreshing, right? Each Christian is spiritually alive by being a Christian. God has given us a, a new heart, so we're alive spiritually. And like a blooming flower, each of us give off an aroma, right? Hopefully of Christ. That's what we do as believers. So the question is, do you refresh others? Or do you deplete others? Someone once said it this way, if you are not a positive encourager, you will probably be a poor admonisher. So friends, are you good at encouraging others? Or are you, ah, I just probably should never talk. Let me, encourage, let me encourage you to encourage others. One of the chief marks of Christian service and giving of yourself is not what do I like, but what will refresh him? What is their need? How can I aim for that, right? Uh, a verse that's come to mind a lot this last few months, I think I've told Kelly probably a handful of times, I don't know why, just struck me is Romans 15, 5. Um, it calls God the God of encouragement. Of all the things God says, call me, call me that. A God of encouragement, just like, really? Oh, all right. Man, what a rich verse that is, right? So seek to be a wellspring for other people. Encourage your brothers. Tell them, hey, I'm praying for you. Or ask them, hey, how can I help you? Or what can I do? I, I, I read this week, Ray Ortland said this, I have never met anyone who is too encouraged. Friends, die for that. That's worth it, right? So how can you encourage someone today or possibly this week? That's what we should aim for. Secondly, we must be filled with genuine affection. So first, we must be intentional. We must devote ourselves to another's benefit. Secondly, Paul says here that we must be filled with genuine affection. Look at verses 19 through 21 where Paul's going to go. And what he's going to do, if you look at this section, you'll notice there's a word that's repeated over and over and over. You probably even just looking, you probably already see it. It is the word greeting. It happens five times in these three verses. So what's the main focus of that section? Well, it's got to be greeting, right? I mean, he says it five times, right? Paul's making it very clear. Being greeted by other churches, other believers, and Paul himself. And when Paul's saying, hey, these guys greet you, they're not just saying, what's up, Corinthians? What's up? Right? They're not just like waving and walking by, right? This is, this is it. He said it, it, it's a hearty greeting. It's, it's 
has affection, has real love in it, right? It's not just, hey, tell them, hey. But look what he tells them to do. Greet each other with a holy what? That's pretty affectionate, isn't it? Now, we ain't going to do that in here. Don't worry. We, we can do the equivalent of hand, shaking the hands and patting back. That's okay. If you want to kiss someone, I guess you could. Make sure you ask them first. But, but, you can, but the point is, be affectionate. Not just, hey, what's up? How are you doing? Be affectionate. Have, have in your heart, right? Real Christian greeting and love is more than surface level. It is from the heart. Now, it's customary for all of us here, me included, because I work a job just like most of you guys do, and you get in the same bubble, in the same atmosphere. And that in the world, we show uh, worldly care and affection for one another. We are prone to reflect how the world greets um, other people. And I do this too. It's almost, it's almost automatic. Let me just give you an example. Hey, how you doing? Just another day in paradise. You didn't even think about that. You just said it. Right? How you doing? Fine. All right. How's the weather? Good. Okay. But I do that too. How you doing, Kale? Fine. Right? It's not right. Thoughtful? Just an automatic regurgitation, right? The world merely cares about worldly things, right? I mean, this is, the world is their top life. Like, this is it. This is all they get is the life, right? This is the world. They care mostly, only about weather, health, work, etc. So they ask merely, the keyword's merely, about worldly things, right? It's called the, uh, the cares of this world, right? Fills their hearts. Why is that? Because it is unnatural to ask about spiritual things, isn't it? It's uncomfortable to pry spiritual things out of other people. It's true. It is. But in reality, the matters of the heart are what actually matter right? If the weather's cloudy or sunny, that's great. But if your soul is sick, that matters a whole lot more about the weather, right? I'm glad this team won. But if you're depressed, I care a lot more about that, right? If your family's struggling, I don't care about, don't tell me fine. I care about your heart, right? This is what we're talking about. So how often do your conversations go beyond, beyond mundane and worldly things of unbelievers? Now, just remember, I said merely. Is it okay to talk about the game? Yes. Is it okay to talk about the weather? Yes. Is it okay to talk about a hot dog? Yes, whatever. It's fine. You should. Okay, it's okay. But it shouldn't just be merely those things, right? We should be affectionate in how we talk. It doesn't mean we, we don't talk about those things, but it means we don't merely do so. But maybe you wonder, why don't we do this? Because we don't. It's... it's we get awkward, we squirm, right? I don't want to ask, you don't want to tell. You don't want me to ask, and I don't want to anyway, so that's good. But this doesn't seem very Christian. It's not honest, right? How are you doing? Fine. My whole life is miserable. I'm doing fine. Well, why don't we do this? I think I know why. I would venture to say that we desire to keep vulnerable, intimate things to ourselves because we don't want other people to know that we are weak, that we're failing in some way, that we don't have it all together, that we fall short in ways, and therefore we fear what they might think about us and what I'll think about them. I think that's probably pretty accurate. That's how I am. I don't think I'm a loser where I can't do this right or I'm failing. If that's you, I want to really encourage you with really good news, okay? 
This fear comes from self-exposure. I got to cover up. I don't want people to see this, so I'm going to hide it. Okay? Why do we do that? Why do you think? When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, what did they do? They sinned, and what did they do with their shame? Do you remember? They hid, right? They cover, they literally cover their, we'll just cover however we can. We'll just camouflage it. No one's going to see, because sin brings forth shame. Sin inward is shame outward, right? That's the response. So they cover and hide the truth about themselves, right? About their sin, about their brokenness, about their neediness, their weakness. They fell short and they're hiding it. But do you remember what God does to Adam and Eve? Well, he does a handful of things, and they're all very loving and very good. Number one, he confronts them. He goes to them, right? Because they're hiding. He goes to them. He, he confronts them about the very thing they did. He's not going. He's not, he's not literally beating around the bush because they're in the bush. I know what you did. Why are you hiding? I mean, he's asking so they'll tell him, not because he doesn't know, right? And he, he confronts the fact that they're hiding because they have shame to cover, right? And what does he do? Well, in Genesis 3.15, God preaches good news to him. He says, hey, one day, someone's going to come crush that serpent. That's the gospel. It's good news, right? And then verse 21 of chapter 3 in Genesis, what does God do with the animal? Do you recall? It's, it's a passing verse, but he kills an animal and covers them with their skin, right? So what does he do? Preaches to them, encourages them, right? Speak up. And then he covers their shame. He literally covers it, right? Meaning the worst and most shameful thing about Adam and Eve was seen and known by he who knows all things. And yet God goes to them, confronts them, and God covers them. So what does that mean for us? Let me encourage you very simply. The worst and most shameful and embarrassing things about you are already known by God. Surprise. Right? You knew that, right? God knows you are weak. He knows you are a failure in things. He knows you are sinful. He knows you are helpless. He knows you are not good at everything. He knows that. So therefore, who did he send? Sunday school answer here. Christ, Right? For at the right time, Romans 5 says, while we are still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. We will scarcely die for a righteous person or a good person, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ bore your sin. He was shamed on the cross for all who would trust him. And coming to Christ requires that you admit that you are a sinful, weak failure, doesn't it? Jesus didn't come for people who got it all together. It's not why you're a Christian. I hope you're not, because then you misunderstand the Bible, right? He came for losers like me. That we would require covering. Jesus came not to save the righteous, but sinners. That's the good news of the gospel, is that you're just the ones that Jesus came for. Colossians chapter 2, probably my favorite text as of the last few weeks, been in my brain a lot. Sometimes texts just stick and read them, they just don't go away. I, I think that's God's grace. Colossians 2, 13 to 14 says this, And you who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all, every single sin, all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Romans ten eleven says this, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him 
will not be put to shame. So what does that mean? Let me encourage you very simply. There is nothing too sinful about you that isn't already covered by Christ. Do you know that? God accepts you freely and totally because of Christ. And just consider this. If you're a Christian, just isn't being Christian a public declaration that you are just not a good person? Isn't that what you're saying? I'm not good. That's what I'm a Christian for. <laughs> right? Isn't that the gospel? I'm bad. That's why I need Christ, right? Isn't baptism a picture of I need Christ? I mean, isn't it? Isn't communion where we together take this family meal saying, I need reminder of grace again? Isn't prayer an expression of I need help? I mean, isn't it? What else is it? Friends, it's good to be weak because when you are weak, then Christ is strong. And there's nothing so shocking about you that isn't going to shock me. Do you want to know why? I'm a sinner too. Oh no, you sinned. You don't have it all together. Welcome to the club. Let's see with everyone else here. It's okay to not be okay. None of us are where we should be. Charles Spurgeon said it this way in the most Spurgeon way that he always says things. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. I like Spurgeon. This church, then, is meant to be a community and culture and care of affection. We should have a hearty greeting in the Lord. Life on life, intimately pursuing one another. Because when we are weak, then Christ is strong. So here's some simple ways to just do that. And this feels awkward, but it should not be that way. Fight against that temptation, that flesh, right? Ask questions very simply like this. Hey, what have you been reading in the Word this week? Are you... Are you struggling with anything? Can I pray for you to help you in some way? How can I pray for you? What's bothering you? What are you listening to this week? Or vice versa. Hey, can you pray for me? I've never met any believer that I would ever say, nah. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. Yes, brother, I'd love to pray for you. Can I confess some sin to you? No. Yes, they're going to tell you yes. They always will. Can, I, can, you, can you encourage me in this? I'm just falling short here. Where do you do this at? Do it over lunch, coffee, gardening, go on a walk, over the phone, at a baseball game. Just name it. Meet with the brother and talk to him. Encourage them. Ask them for help. They'll help you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 prescribes this, that you should sing and admonish and exhort one another. It's a command. The spiritual health of a church truly matters, and this is how it grows. By filling your prayer list with those who are here who have real spiritual needs, family problems, financial burdens, who are fearful, who are weak. That's why we gather, because we are those things. That's a good sign that you're weak, because Christ is strong. Thirdly and lastly, we must see everyone in gospel truth. So first, we must, it, we must be intentional, must have real affection, we must be filled with and we must see everyone in gospel truth. Look at verses 22 through 24. There's two, two implications very quickly. If you, if you notice, look at verse 22 uh, towards the end, the very last phrase. Um, if you have a King James or something else, yours, might, yours probably says the word uh, Maranatha, Maranatha. Uh, that means our Lord come quickly, come quickly, Lord, right? So these are both um, based off of that. So if Christ comes, there's going to be two types of people, right? There's the sheep and the goats. 
There's believers and unbelievers, right? There's lost and saved, and this is what it comes down to. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. This is, this is the Christian's cry, right? I mean, don't you, don't, don't you think this verse a lot? Lord, please come quickly. Please come. Please come. I'm so tired. Please come, right? So all Paul's letter, all of the Bible, says you, you just see everyone in this room and in life in one of two ways. First, they are either, that they are either under the wrath of Christ, the first way. Look at verse 22. Paul pronounces a judgment, if you look. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed, or yours might say ananthema. It's the Greek word, ananthema. This word is found in Galatians chapter 1, where Paul says, if, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. Um, means, may God send them to hell. That's exactly what that means. It's just a serious, big word, right? Paul warns all those who have no love for the Lord. Why? Because it is love for Christ that makes the distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian, right? A love for Lord Jesus marks us out. This love for Christ invades every area of life. Um, just as every bit of water is wet, so every part of the true Christian's life will be Christ, right? Just it's, He's everywhere. He infects the whole thing. He's everywhere. J.C. Ryle said it in such a good way. Love to the Lord Jesus Christ is no hidden, secret, or impalpable thing. It is like the light. It will be seen. It is like sound. It will be heard. It is like heat. It will be felt. Where it exists, it cannot be hidden. Where it cannot be seen, you may be sure that there is none. So the solemn question, the serious question we have this morning is, do you have love for Christ? That's it. Not just intellectual agreement, not just a hat tip, but a heart-filled love for Jesus. That's what makes a Christian. That's it, right? Faith in Christ is love for Christ. If there's no love for Christ, there's no Christianity in your heart. It's just Paul's making it cut and dry here. It's commonly known, you guys probably know this text, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments, right? Well, one of the best ways to understand that is actually in John's other letter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, which says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They are not burdensome. Do you guys know what a burden is? Sometimes, are you married to one? Just kidding. A burden, something that weighs you down. You can't break free from, just like, if I just get this thing, just get this weight off me, I'd be fine. Like, I, I think of like backpacking up a trail. This backpack is literally a burden. If I just get it off, I just huh, finally have some rest, right? And actually walk how I want to walk. I, I want to get away from it, right? It hinders you, it impedes your life, it restricts your comfort, it bothers you from truly living. So for the non-Christian, God's commandments are a burden. I can't wait to get them off. Just can't wait. Can't wait to be done with this. I don't want to obey. It's, I can't walk the way I walk, live the way I want to live. Can't stand it. If there's no love for Christ and his commandments, there is no Christianity. So the way you, you should see this is, do you see other people this way? Meaning, friends, you know unbelievers. I do. I know that you do. When you see them, you should shudder. This week, uh, I was at Walmart getting Kelly potting mix or something. Doesn't matter. And I talked to a guy outside who was right by my truck, or car, sorry, he used to have a truck, at his truck by my car. And he said, hey, can I ask you about the gospel? 
He was so offended, he didn't even give me his name. So I shared the whole gospel. So I just called him Bill. I don't know what his name was. Never heard of the gospel. He's in his 60s. Doesn't want to hear it. Doesn't care about it. You should shudder for men like Bill. He just didn't care. Shudder. To see other people that way. Because when Christ comes back, he will destroy his enemies. Opposing him is like fighting a volcano with a squirt gun. I mean, it's suicide, right? So if, there, if there's any here who have no love for Christ, be warned. God has, the psalmist said his arrows are fitted. His bow is drawn. I mean, he's ready to fire, the Bible says, right? Any minute, every day they're storing up more wrath, Romans 2, 5. So therefore, as a Christian, it is right and loving to see non-Christians in truth. When you do that, your intentions will be pure with them always. Your desires will be heavenly. Your prayer life will grow like crazy. Your love for them will actually intensify because you'll love them rightly as a non-believer. You'll understand that. It will increase for them and for God. We cannot lie to ourselves about unbelievers. We do them a great evil just as a doctor who lies does great harm to his patients. We cannot lie to them. We must see unbelievers in truth and your heart will actually grow in love for them. It really will grow when you see them rightly. Secondly, so those who are under God's, or the, uh, uh, under the wrath of Christ are those who are in the second group is those who are in the grace of Christ. Look at verses 23 and 24 as Paul wraps this up. Paul writes of the grace of the Lord Jesus, the, the free love, you could say, of Christ towards undeserving, wrath-deserving people like us, right? His free kindness that springs from himself, not because of the things we've done, because of what, who he is, right? This is the gospel. It's good news. Acts 15, 11, All are saved. Through the grace of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't matter what they are, how bad, how old, how mean, how snooty, how kind, how moral. It doesn't matter. We're all saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And then Romans 3.24. And all are justified by his grace as a gift. Whom God put forward. That we receive by faith. So all of us are saved by God's grace for God's glory. So that none can what? boast right so we repent from our sin we say i'm a sinner you are a sinner repent from your sins put your trust in christ god can legally save you and give you his son's credit it's the good news right it's the gospel turn from your sins forsake it put your trust in christ and now as a christian you no longer see god's law as a burden but as a delight doesn't mean it's not hard it is hard to be a christian but you like it Right? I love, I, I want to obey, right? But it's hard, but I still, I want to. One old dead guy said this way, <laughs> grace comes not to take away our affections, but to take them up. So Christians are not these joyless, I can't do anything fun, I just got to sit at home and pout. That's not a Christian, right? Christians actually have better things. They have higher loves. They have better desires. They have a greater life, honestly, Right? They have unending joy. They have permanent love. They have superior pleasure. Psalm 1611. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Everlasting joy. I want that. That's a Christian life. Fullness of joy. Pleasures forever. That's better than any worldly life I, I could think of. If you can give me some better than that, I will take it. But you can't because it doesn't exist. God's commandments are sweet like honey. So therefore, as a Christian, all of your life is of grace. 
This, this afternoon, read Ephesians 1 or read Romans 8. It is very clear that all of your life is of grace. So do you see now that if you're a Christian and you sit by other believers, do you see them differently? Do you see them as co-heirs, as fellow travelers, and as soldiers? So what should you do? You should help them on their way, right? I'm not going to slow them down. I'll slow down if it'll speed them up, right? Wouldn't you rather be spent for that? Slowing down, speeding them up, pouring myself out for them? All that we do in, in obedience to Christ for others is worth it. It's worth it for our brothers. In heaven, uh, we'll see a lot of people there. Just unfathomable number of people there, right? And my assumption is I will see people who preached to me when I was a kid and at, at my old church and my parents and youth pastors and all this. And I'll say, thank you. Thank you for preaching to me. Thank you for encouraging me or convicting me or for being a brother next to me. Just tell me, hey, don't do that. All right, or whatever. And for volunteer, I mean, I'm gonna thank God for all of them. But here's the question that we should be thinking. In heaven, will anyone look to you and say, I gotta tell them Thanks. Thank you for doing that. Will anyone look to you and thank you? Will they cry in joy for your aid and your help? That is not a wasted life. Live for that. Lay another log on their fire, not cold water. Lay a log on it. And notice, look at Paul's love, verse 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So Paul closed with his affectionate pastoral love for the Corinthians, despite their Corinthianizing of themselves, right? How bad they are, he loves them. His rebukes, corrections, teaching, preaching, praying, laboring, laying down, serving, giving, visiting, helping, weeping, loving, all that. It was all for them, all for their good, because he loved them as Christ loved them. And brothers, my prayer for you is that you would know this love of Christ that Paul has for them, Christ has for you, and that you would know that I have that affection for you that I do love you all, that I do pray for you regularly, that I, that I think about you. How can I help? How can I guide? What should I do? How can I plan these things? How can I not do things? Even, okay, if, if I'm gonna change that, is that good? Is that biblical? Or is it just because I don't like it? Well, that's not right. Even know that I do love you. My desire is for you to love Christ, that you would grow more. These two great things, the grace of Christ and love any local church, can bring love to any dreary day. So my prayer for us, and I hope your prayer be the same, that we would devote ourselves to one another's benefit, we'd be filled with genuine affection, and we'd see everyone in gospel truth. Maranatha, let's pray.